Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. Well, greetings to you. I'm glad you can be with us today. I'm going to talk about a very simple verse in the Bible, Acts chapter 16, verse 31, and some misunderstandings about that verse. It was about 2,000 years ago on a second missionary journey where Paul, uh, traveling with Silas, were in the city of Philippi on the European continent, and there he cast a demon out of a young girl, and the owner of the girl, realizing his prophet was uh, now in danger, turned him over to the magistrates who beat him and Silas and threw them into a Roman prison cell, or at least guarded by a Roman uh, soldier who is called the commander of the prison, or we would call him a warden today. They were in the cell, and they were singing late into the night and uh, praying, and it says the other prisoners heard them, listened to them. And then an earthquake happened, and as it did, it broke the shackles from their feet and opened the jail doors, and they were all suddenly free. And for whatever reason we might conclude, the jailer who was in charge of these prisoners, who would have been liable for them by a death penalty if they escaped, said, what must I do, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And the simple answer was, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. A very simple answer has generated a lot of discussion about exactly what Paul meant and therefore what is the condition of salvation. The first misunderstanding I want to talk about is that some people would say that this conveys everything we need to know about the gospel. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Well, yes, that can be true, but that would assume that somebody knows something about Jesus Christ and what he's done, would know something about their own sinful condition and need of salvation. That may be true quite often in the West, where Jesus has traditionally been preached and known, but in many countries, someone was telling me in Canada, I forget the percentage, a high percentage of people have not heard the name of Jesus, nor can they say who he is. And it's true like that in many cultures in the world. It would draw an absolute blank for them if we were to say to them, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Do they know they need to be saved? Do they know who Jesus is? They may know dozens of people named Jesus. And what does it mean that he's Lord and Christ? What's the significance of that? So is it adequate for salvation? Yes, if we understand that a person knows something about him already. But no, not if a person has incorrect information about who Jesus is or thinks he's talking, Paul might have been talking about another Jesus or has a wrong view of what it means to believe or doesn't realize his need for eternal salvation. We have to realize that in the book of Acts, Luke is recording for us a very brief summary of a longer story that took place probably from the afternoon into past midnight. And so he's giving us the briefest description of what happened. In other passages in the book of Acts, we know that Paul and the apostles taught the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we could go to many passages there. I'm not going to list them here, but they're going to be in, listed in the grace notes. 
And by the way, this is number 88, which will be on our website, gracelife.org, under Resources, Grace Notes, and then number 88. So we see examples of what he preached, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then we see further examples in his teaching in the epistles, especially in the book of Romans and Galatians, Philippians and Colossians, uh, talks about the death and the resurrection of Christ as the basis of the gospel. There's no question about that. So what were the listeners there in the jail, the, the other prisoners, what were they hearing? What could the warden have heard when he admitted them and the charges were described uh, against Paul and Silas? What would he have heard? Whatever he heard stimulated him to ask the question, what must I do to be saved? I do believe he had eternal salvation in mind. I surmise that it is implied that he heard and knew something about Jesus from his prisoners, why they were charged, or what they were saying when they were there. And so when it came time for the earthquake and he realized that he was facing imminent death, as many would do at the facing of their their death, would ask and wonder, where is their eternity uh, going to be? And so he asked the question, what must I do to be saved? So it's not in the immediate context, but that's not Luke's purpose. Luke's purpose is to describe an event in Paul's life uh, that happened in the city of Philippi as the gospel advances. He wants to make it clear what the condition of salvation is, and he doesn't explain everything that Paul has preached because he does more of that in other passages. So it's always about context, context, context. So we, if we ask the question, does this convey an adequate gospel message for anyone to be saved? We have to ask the question, well, what does that person know? What is the cu cultural context of that person? What is the linguistic context? What do they understand by the words that we've just said? How would that translate into other languages? I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So uh, yes and no, but I do believe that the jailer understood enough that he could ask the question and expect an intelligent answer that would guide him into eternity. His questions were not about who Jesus was. His questions were not about why he needed salvation. His question was, what did he have to do? That's the focus of the story. That's the focus of the text. And that should be our main focus. The jailer knew enough. He just wanted to know, what did he have to do? And that's the question that Paul was answering. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Now, a second misunderstanding that he would say it's an insufficient condition for salvation. Now, verse 31 makes it as simple as it can be. He, there's a simple question, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And there's a simple answer, which condensed down is belief. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And some people say, well, that's not enough for salvation. And yet, faith in Christ for as a condition for salvation is used by Paul five times in the book of Acts. So he's being consistent here. There's one condition for salvation. It's faith alone. But some people would say, well, it's not complete because Paul's not telling them to repent or to turn from their sins, which is how many people define repentance, although I would define it differently. So Paul doesn't say that, therefore it's an incomplete gospel. But Luke is only reporting Paul's emphasis on the simple condition of belief. 
he does have Paul mentioning repentance and a few other passages, I think, that relate to salvation. But one thing is very clear is that Paul understood repentance as an inner change, a new inner orientation of the harder mind, change of mind, which is basically what the word means. And it, he distinct, makes it distinctly separate from the outward resulting conduct. Now, I could argue this at length, but I do that in Grace Notes number 22, where I write about repentance. So you might look at Grace Notes number 22 on the website gracelife.org. The jailer had a change of mind about something, we know, or else he wouldn't have asked the question and had that sense of desperation. Now this takes us to a third misunderstanding. And this is that what Paul was telling the jailer was that he had to submit to Jesus as Lord and master of his life in order to be saved. John R. W. Stott said in an older magazine article, why does Paul tell the flipping jailer that he must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved if he must only believe in him as Savior? And he then cites Acts chapter 16 and verse 31. Well, why does Paul mention Jesus is Lord? Well, first of all, let's talk about uh, the condition that we do see. The condition that we see is to believe, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. To believe does not mean to submit in any way. It means to accept something as true, to be persuaded or convinced that it is true and trustworthy. That's what lexicons do when untainted theologically on the word itself. In fact, some people say, well, it talks about believing on. And the preposition in the Greek word there is ice, which means in or on. And some people say you have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's how you get saved. That's the only way to get saved. But no, that's not consistent with the scriptures. The scriptures teach that believing on, believing in, do, do emphasize the object of our faith, who is Jesus Christ. But, and, and there are other verses where say, believe that Jesus is the Christ, like the purpose statement in Acts, uh, I'm sorry, in John chapter 20, verse 31, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Whereas Peter said, we, we believe and we know that you have the words of eternal life. So in some ways, uh, that emphasizes perhaps the proposition that Jesus is who he says he is, whereas believe on emphasizes the person. But there's no difference when it comes to salvation. Uh, both bring eternal salvation, to believe on, to believe that, or just to believe. Um, in fact, in, in verse 34, it says, uh, in verse 34, now when he had, when Paul had brought them, I'm sorry, when the jailer had brought them into his house, he set food before them and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. So this, this takes us to uh, the significance of the word Lord. Uh, when the jailer heard the word Lord, what would he have understood? Verse 34 gives us a clue that he understood Lord in the plainest sense, not only as a title of respect, but as a title of deity as well. Now, I'm going to get Greek on you a little bit, but the word Lord used here in the Greek is the word Kyrios. Kyrios. And it's used with Jesus' other names, uh, the Lord Jesus uh, Christ. 
Jesus meaning Savior, Christ, the Anointed One, the Chosen One, the Messiah. Now, the interesting thing is that the Lord is often used as a title of respect, much like in the Spanish language, Señor can refer to God, or it can just refer to a term of respect, Señor Bing, for example. But the very same term in the plural form, not curios, but curioi in the plural, is used in verse 30 when the jailer asks Paul and Silas, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And so the translator, I think, properly translates this sirs instead of lords. But it shows a title of respect. And yet it would have denoted, I think, also primarily to the Philippian jailer, the deity of Christ. Because who would these people call this lowly man? Why would they call this lowly man Lord unless they were trying to uh, designate him as something other than a regular man? And so perhaps through the preaching, uh, perhaps through the teaching, perhaps through his reputation, they are designating Jesus as Lord. Now, some people say, well, then that means that this is a demand that they submit to his lordship or his mastery over all of their lives. Well, just to call him Lord doesn't mean that we uh, automatically submit to him with all of our lives. There are parts of Christian religion that talk about the Lord Jesus Christ and yet, in fact, have their way of salvation wrong, incorrect, and do not show submission to his truth at all. And, for example, we might talk about, as an American, we might talk about my president. The commander-in-chief is called the president of the United States, and we might call him my president. But that doesn't mean that I am submitted to him in every aspect of his authority. I should be, and every American should be, but we know every American is not. Also, I want to point out that it's kind of arbitrary that uh, we would choose mastery as one aspect of Christ's lordship to demand as a condition for salvation, because Lord primarily denoted deity, but deity uh, denoted many other things that Jesus was um, creator, that he was a sustainer, that he was a provider, uh, high priest. I mean, there are many roles that Jesus plays in his deity. So to take mastery as a little bit arbitrary as one aspect of his deity to submit to. Why not the other aspects of his deity? Now, I want to say this, though, that Jesus as Lord is very important in salvation because Jesus could not save us unless he was Lord and is Lord or God himself. He offered an eternal sacrifice because he is deity. So a person is saved because Jesus as God could offer his life as a man as an eternal sacrifice as God. And that's why his Lordship is important in salvation. So it's very misleading for someone to say that I or you would believe in no lordship salvation. No, Jesus is Lord, and that's why he can save us. But that is not an implicit or explicit demand for us to submit to him. Now, I would admit that somebody who believes in Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, should 
intuitively understand that if he's trusting him for salvation, he should trust him with the rest of his life. And sometimes that is uh, almost simultaneous response, sometimes a bit delayed. In my life, I think that it took me some while to align my life as I began to understand what Christ's mastery over my life involved. And so it does take some time before we really understand that. We have to ask the question, what would this pagan jailer have understood about Jesus' demands for his life? How could he know if he was submitted totally to Jesus in all aspects of his life if he had not been trained in any Christian teachings? You know, another interesting uh, illustration of this is in Acts chapter 9 in the salvation of the Apostle Paul. Most believe this is his salvation on the Damascus Road. And I once heard Dr. John Walver, the late president of Dallas Theological Seminary, make this point. Um, he was making the point opposing the view of lordship salvation. Because there on the road, uh, when Paul is struck down and hears the voice, and, and the voice says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul or Saul said, who are you, Lord? There's the issue of his identity and who are you? Who is God? Who is this claiming to be God? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. So he identifies himself as the Lord Jesus. And at that point, we can see that Paul believed in him, or at least we take, we assume that Paul believed him at at that point. There's no reason not to believe that from his later testimony. But what Paul says next is very interesting, because after he says, I am the Lord, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, Paul says, Lord, what do you want me to do? Lord, what do you want me to do? And then Jesus gives him an assignment to go into the city, and you'll be told what to do. Now, those weren't conditions for salvation. Paul wasn't asking, what do I need to do to be saved? He's saying, okay, I believe that you are Jesus, God. I believe that, Jesus, you are God. I believe that you're the Savior I've been persecuting. So now what do I do? And so there's a distinct separation between Paul's salvation and Paul's desire to serve God under his mastery. So what we need to see here is the order is very simple. You have to believe before you are saved and before you can serve God. I know there are strongly Calvinistic theologies that say you have to be regenerated before you can believe. In in essence, they're saying they would say you have to be saved or elected and regenerated before you can believe. We don't see that at all in this story. They could never use that in support of this. Believe and you will be saved. A fourth misunderstanding that we see in this brief passage some people look at this passage and see it as a promise that. If one person in the household believes, then all will be saved. Because Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. But we know that this can't be true. If this were true, we would have an exponential number of believers today, wouldn't we? Even God could not keep his firstborn, so to speak, Adam, his first son, um, saved. Uh, He he uh, defected in this unbelief. So what Paul then does is he preaches to the jailer's household so that they also could believe, and it tells us that they believe and they're baptized. 
just as the jailer had to believe for himself for salvation, which is always the way it is in the scripture, each person must believe that Jesus is their savior. One person's faith is not effective for another person. And so Paul preached to the whole household. Evidently, the whole household believed because it says in verse 34 that he believed, the jailer had believed in God with all his household. And because of that, they were all baptized. So it would be comforting to think that, but I don't, I would not rely on Acts chapter 16, verse 31 for the salvation of my family, automatic salvation based on my faith. The scriptures wouldn't teach that. I think it's much more effective if we pray for each person in our family and ask God to answer our prayers. What we've seen today is a very simple story and a very simple statement about salvation. It's a statement that we must focus on. The simple answer of what must I do to be saved is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not believe plus anything else. We have to always be suspicious when someone wants to add something to the condition for salvation. It's as simple as John 3.16, the statement there, whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. There's no demand to turn from sins here. There's no demand to submit to Jesus as master of one's life. It's clear that each person who must be saved must believe in Jesus Christ for their eternal salvation. And then, when they discover that wonderful grace of God and how God has provided salvation through the death of Christ for our sins and his resurrection from the dead for our eternal life and his promise, which he can never break, that he will give life to anyone who believes, when they experience that wonderful gift of grace, then each of us will be motivated to submit to Jesus Christ and his will for our lives. And so I don't believe in lordship salvation, but I do believe in lordship sanctification. After we believe, or even upon believing, almost simultaneously, we can submit to him as the Lord for all of our lives, because if he can take care of our salvation and demonstrate his grace there, how much more so in our Christian lives? Well, I appreciate you listening. You can find this Grace Notes number 88 on our website, gracelife.org. And it is number 88 under Resources Grace Notes. Look for it there, and we'll see you soon. Well, greetings to you. I'm glad you can be with us today. I'm going to talk about a very simple verse in the Bible, Acts chapter 16, verse 31, and some misunderstandings about that verse. It was about 2,000 years ago on a second missionary journey where Paul, uh, traveling with Silas, were in the city of Philippi on the European continent, and there he cast a demon out of a young girl, and the owner of the girl, realizing his prophet was uh, now in danger, turned him over to the magistrates who beat him and Silas and threw them into a Roman prison cell, or at least guarded by a Roman uh, soldier who is called the commander of the prison, or we would call him a warden today. They were in the cell, and they were singing late into the night and uh, praying, and it says the other prisoners heard them, listened to them. And then an earthquake happened, and as it did, it broke the shackles from their feet and opened the jail doors, and they were all suddenly free. 
And for whatever reason we might conclude, the jailer who was in charge of these prisoners, who would have been liable for them by a death penalty if they escaped, said, what must I do, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And the simple answer was, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. A very simple answer has generated a lot of discussion about exactly what Paul meant and therefore what is the condition of salvation. The first misunderstanding I want to talk about is that some people would say that this conveys everything we need to know about the gospel. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Well, yes, that can be true, but that would assume that somebody knows something about Jesus Christ and what he's done, would know something about their own sinful condition and need of salvation. That may be true quite often in the West, where Jesus has traditionally been preached and known, but in many countries, someone was telling me in Canada, I forget the percentage, a high percentage of people have not heard the name of Jesus, nor can they say who he is. And it's true like that in many cultures in the world. It would draw an absolute blank for them if we were to say to them, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Do they know they need to be saved? Do they know who Jesus is? They may know dozens of people named Jesus. And what does it mean that he's Lord and Christ? What's the significance of that? So is it adequate for salvation? Yes, if we understand that a person knows something about him already. But no, not if a person has incorrect information about who Jesus is or thinks he's talking, Paul might have been talking about another Jesus or has a wrong view of what it means to believe or doesn't realize his need for eternal salvation. We have to realize that in the book of Acts, Luke is recording for us a very brief summary of a longer story that took place probably from the afternoon into past midnight. And so he's giving us the briefest description of what happened. In other passages in the book of Acts, we know that Paul and the apostles taught the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we could go to many passages there. I'm not going to list them here, but they're going to be in, listed in the grace notes. And by the way, this is number 88, which will be on our website, gracelife.org, under resources, grace notes, and then number 88. So we see examples of what he preached, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then we see further examples in his teaching in the epistles, especially in the book of Romans and Galatians, Philippians and Colossians, uh, talks about the death and the resurrection of Christ as the basis of the gospel. There's no question about that. So what were the listeners there in the jail, the, the other prisoners, what were they hearing? What could the warden have heard when he admitted them and the charges were described uh, against Paul and Silas? What would he have heard? Whatever he heard stimulated him to ask the question, what must I do to be saved? I do believe he had eternal salvation in mind. I surmise that it is implied that he heard and knew something about Jesus from his prisoners, why they were charged, or what they were saying when they were there. And so when it came time for the earthquake and he realized that he was facing imminent death, as many would do at the facing of their, their death, would ask and wonder, where is their eternity uh, going to be? And so he asked the question, what must I do to be saved? So it's not in the immediate context, but that's not Luke's purpose. 
Luke's purpose is to describe an event in Paul's life uh, that happened in the city of Philippi as the gospel advances. He wants to make it clear what the condition of salvation is, and he doesn't explain everything that Paul has preached because he does more of that in other passages. So it's always about context, context, context. So we, if we ask the question, does this convey an adequate gospel message for anyone to be saved? We have to ask the question, well, what does that person know? What is the co cultural context of that person? What is the linguistic context? What do they understand by the words that we've just said? How would that translate into other languages? I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So uh, yes and no, but I do believe that the jailer understood enough that he could ask the question and expect an intelligent answer that would guide him into eternity. His questions were not about who Jesus was. His questions were not about why he needed salvation. His question was, what did he have to do? That's the focus of the story. That's the focus of the text. And that should be our main focus. The jailer knew enough. He just wanted to know, what did he have to do? And that's the question that Paul was answering. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now, a second misunderstanding that he would say it's an insufficient condition for salvation. Now, verse 31 makes it as simple as it can be. He, there's a simple question, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And there's a simple answer, which condensed down is belief. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And some people say, well, that's not enough for salvation. And yet, faith in Christ for, as a condition for salvation is used by Paul five times in the book of Acts. So he's being consistent here. There's one condition for salvation. It's faith alone. But some people would say, well, it's not complete because Paul's not telling them to repent or to turn from their sins, which is how many people define repentance, although I would define it differently. So Paul doesn't say that, therefore it's an incomplete gospel. But Luke is only reporting Paul's emphasis on the simple condition of belief. He does have Paul mentioning repentance and a few other passages, I think, that relate to salvation. But one thing is very clear is that Paul understood repentance as an inner change, a new inner orientation of the harder mind, change of mind, which is basically what the word means. And it, he distinct, makes it distinctly separate from the outward resulting conduct. Now, I could argue this at length, but I do that in Grace Notes number 22, where I write about repentance. So you might look at Grace Notes number 22 on the website, gracelife.org. The jailer had a change of mind about something, we know, or else he wouldn't have asked the question and had that sense of desperation. Now, this takes us to a third misunderstanding. And this is that what Paul was telling the jailer was that he had to submit to Jesus as Lord and master of his life in order to be saved. John R. W. Stott said in a older magazine article, why does Paul tell the flipping jailer that he must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved if he must only believe in him as Savior. And he then cites Acts chapter 16 and verse 31. Well, why does Paul mention Jesus is Lord? Well, first of all, 
let's talk about uh, the condition that we do see. The condition that we see is to believe, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. To believe does not mean to submit in any way. It means to accept something as true, to be persuaded or convinced that it is true and trustworthy. That's what lexicons do when untainted theologically and the word itself. In fact, some people say, well, it talks about believing on. And the preposition in the Greek word there is ice, which means in or on. And some people say you have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's how you get saved. That's the only way to get saved. But no, that's not consistent with the scriptures. The scriptures teach that believing on, believing in, do, do emphasize the object of our faith, who is Jesus Christ. But, and, and there are other verses where say, believe that Jesus is the Christ, like the purpose statement in Acts, uh, I'm sorry, in John chapter 20, verse 31, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Whereas Peter said, we, we believe and we know that you have the words of eternal life. So in some ways, uh, that emphasizes perhaps the proposition that Jesus is who he says he is, whereas believe on emphasizes the person. But there's no difference when it comes to salvation. Uh, both bring eternal salvation, to believe on, to believe that, or just to believe. Um, in fact, in, in verse 34, it says, uh, in verse 34, now when he had, when Paul had brought them, I'm sorry, when the jailer had brought them into his house, he set food before them and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. So this, this takes us to uh, the significance of the word Lord. Uh, when the jailer heard the word Lord, what would he have understood? Verse 34 gives us a clue that he understood Lord in the plainest sense, not only as a title of respect, but as a title of deity as well. Now, I'm going to get Greek on you a little bit, but the word Lord used here in the Greek is the word Kyrios. Kyrios. And it's used with Jesus' other names, uh, the Lord Jesus uh, Christ. Jesus meaning Savior, Christ, the Anointed One, the Chosen One, the Messiah. Now, the interesting thing is that the Lord is often used as a title of respect, much like in the Spanish language, Señor can refer to God, or it can just refer to a term of respect, Señor Bing, for example. But the very same term in the plural form, not curios, but curioi in the plural, is used in verse 30 when the jailer asks Paul and Silas, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And so the translator, I think, properly translates this sirs instead of lords. But it shows a title of respect. And yet it would have denoted, I think, also primarily to the Philippian jailer, the deity of Christ. Because who would these people call this lowly man? Why would they call this lowly man Lord unless they were trying to uh, designate him as something other than a regular man? And so perhaps through the preaching, uh, perhaps through the teaching, perhaps through his reputation, they are designating Jesus as Lord. Now, some people say, well, then that means that this is a demand that they submit to his lordship or his mastery over all of their lives. Well, just to call him Lord doesn't mean that we uh, automatically submit to him 
with all of our lives. There are parts of Christian religion that talk about the Lord Jesus Christ and yet, in fact, have their way of salvation wrong, incorrect, and do not show submission to his truth at all. And, for example, we might talk about, as an American, we might talk about my president. The commander-in-chief is called the president of the United States, and we might call him my president. But that doesn't mean that I am submitted to him in every aspect of his authority. I should be, and every American should be, but we know every American is not. Also, I want to point out that it's kind of arbitrary that uh, we would choose mastery as one aspect of Christ's lordship to demand as a condition for salvation, because Lord primarily denoted deity, but deity uh, denoted many other things, that Jesus was um, creator, that he was a sustainer, that he was a provider, uh, high priest. I mean, there are many roles that Jesus plays in his deity. So to take mastery as a little bit arbitrary as one aspect of his deity to submit to. Why not the other aspects of his deity? Now, I want to say this, though, that Jesus as Lord is very important in salvation because Jesus could not save us unless he was Lord and is Lord or God himself. He offered an eternal sacrifice because he is deity. So a person is saved because Jesus, as God, could offer his life as a man as an eternal sacrifice as God. And that's why his lordship is important in salvation. So it's very misleading for someone to say that I or you would believe in no lordship salvation. No, Jesus is Lord, and that's why he can save us. But that is not an implicit or explicit demand for us to submit to him. Now, I would admit that somebody who believes in Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, should intuitively understand that if he's trusting him for salvation, he should trust him with the rest of his life. And sometimes that is almost simultaneous response, sometimes a bit delayed in my life. I think that it took me some while to align my life as I began to understand what Christ's mastery over my life involved. And so it does take some time before we really understand that. We have to ask the question, what would this pagan jailer have understood about Jesus' demands for his life? How could he know if he was submitted totally to Jesus in all aspects of his life if he had not been trained in any Christian teachings? You know, another interesting uh, illustration of this is in Acts chapter 9 in the salvation of the Apostle Paul. Most believe this is his salvation on the Damascus Road. And I once heard Dr. John Walver, the late president of Dallas Theological Seminary, make this point. Um, he was making the point opposing the view of lordship salvation. Because there on the road, uh, when Paul is struck down and hears the voice, and, and the voice says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul or Saul said, who are you, Lord? There's the issue of his identity and who are you? Who is God? Who is this claiming to be God? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. 
it is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he identifies himself as the Lord Jesus. And at that point, we can see that Paul believed in him, or at least we take, we assume that Paul believed in him at that, at that point. There's no reason not to believe that from his later testimony. But what Paul says next is very interesting, because after he says, I am the Lord, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, Paul says, Lord, what do you want me to do? Lord, what do you want me to do? And then Jesus gives him an assignment to go into the city, and you'll be told what to do. Now, those weren't conditions for salvation. Paul wasn't asking, what do I need to do to be saved? He's saying, okay, I believe that you are Jesus, God. I believe that, Jesus, you are God. I believe that you're the Savior I've been persecuting. So now what do I do? And so there's a distinct separation between Paul's salvation and Paul's desire to serve God under his mastery. So what we need to see here is the order is very simple. You have to believe before you are saved and before you can serve God. I know there are strongly Calvinistic theologies that say you have to be regenerated before you can believe. In, in essence, they're saying they would say you have to be saved or elected and regenerated before you can believe. We don't see that at all in this story. They could never use that in support of this. Believe and you will be saved. A fourth misunderstanding that we see in this brief passage, some people look at this passage and see it as a promise that if one person in the household believes, then all will be saved. Because Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. But we know that this can't be true. If this were true, we would have an exponential number of believers today, wouldn't we? Even God could not keep his firstborn, so to speak, Adam, his first son, um, saved. Uh, he he uh, defected in this unbelief. So what Paul then does is he preaches to the jailer's household so that they also could believe, and it tells us that they believe and they're baptized, just as the jailer had to believe for himself for salvation, which is always the way it is in the Scripture. Each person must believe that Jesus is their Savior. One person's faith is not effective for another person. And so Paul preached to the whole household. Evidently, the whole household believed because it says in verse 34 that he believed, the jailer had believed in God with all his household. And because of that, they were all baptized. So it would be comforting to think that, but I don't, I would not rely on Acts chapter 16, verse 31 for the salvation of my family, automatic salvation based on my faith. The scriptures wouldn't teach that. I think it's much more effective if we pray for each person in our family and ask God to answer our prayers. What we've seen today is a very simple story and a very simple statement about salvation. It's a statement that we must focus on. The simple answer of what must I do to be saved is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not believe plus anything else. We have to always be suspicious when someone wants to add something to the condition for salvation. It's as simple as John 3.16, the statement there, whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. 
There's no demand to turn from sins here. There's no demand to submit to Jesus as master of one's life. It's clear that each person who must be saved must believe in Jesus Christ for their eternal salvation. And then, when they discover that wonderful grace of God and how God has provided salvation through the death of Christ for our sins and his resurrection from the dead for our eternal life and his promise, which he can never break, that he will give life to anyone who believes, when they experience that wonderful gift of grace, then each of us will be motivated to submit to Jesus Christ and his will for our lives. And so I don't believe in lordship salvation, but I do believe in lordship sanctification. After we believe, or even upon believing, almost simultaneously, we can submit to him as the Lord for all of our lives, because if he can take care of our salvation and demonstrate his grace there, how much more so in our Christian lives. Well, I appreciate you listening. You can find this Grace Notes number 88 on our website, gracelife.org. And it is number 88 under Resources Grace Notes. Look for it there, and we'll see you soon. Thank you for listening. For more resources, or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace.org at gracelife.org. See you next time.